The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association takes this time to thank our 2023 corporate sponsors. Bristol Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, BioMarin, Tanaya Therapeutics, Edgewise Therapeutics, and Embrya. And thank you to our 2023 annual patient meeting sponsors. Bristol Myers Squibb, BioMarin, Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya Therapeutics, Edgewise Therapeutics, Rocket Pharmaceuticals, and Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, with additional funding provided by the J.T. Babbitt Foundation. everybody and welcome to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Today we were expecting Dr. Marin. Unfortunately, he had an emergency and could not be here. So I am being joined by Joey Graham and we're going to have a discussion about some things important to the HCM community as we head into the holiday season and as we wrap up the year and kind of get ready for next year. It's good to see you all. It's 11.06 a.m. on December 8th, 2023. You know, I've been looking at best practices, Joey, on podcasts. Yes. And a lot of people don't give the date and time of the podcast. And I've always made it a point to tell you that this is when we're live. And not only this is when we're live, so you can ask live questions, but also science changes so fast. Yep. Things move so quickly. So if you ever wonder why this is the one podcast where I give the date and time is because technology is moving so fast right now. I don't want anybody to say that's not true when they listen to it, because in December of 2023, it was the way we were dealing with things. And December of 2024, there may be different things on the table. That makes total sense. I've done a lot of podcast editing and stuff in my life and we never did it. And when we first started doing it here, I'm like, well, that's interesting. And then I saw how it played out in time and things change. So it's not a static thing. So I think it makes sense. Just put like chapters or markers on it. So it's in context. If I was podcasting in 1997 (laughs) or 98, we'd be talking that dual chamber pacemakers were the thing that were going to change the management of HCM. Right. And that's what we thought was going to happen. And if it was 1999, it would have been everybody needs an alcohol septal ablation. Yeah. So like things just change and we find yep. the place for these therapies and they're all balanced. We yeah. still can use dual chamber pacing in some people. It doesn't work well in most, but in some it does. Alcohol ablation is still a great option for some. Myectomy is always going to be a great option for some. Camzios or myosin inhibitors will be a good option for some, but we are in a day of really yep. Yeah, it is. You've had a year and I've been looking at you on Facebook and you've had a fun two weeks as well. So (laughs) I don't even know where, I mean, where do we start with that? Trigger warning for those of you with with gastrointestinal issues. I'm going to share a little bit of information this morning with y'all. And it's about life with transplant and why there are some rules around transplant life and how they play out in real time in a way that only I could do. Last Friday night, so a week ago, I was in Washington, D.C. at a wonderful meeting. I love this meeting. It is called the Cardiovascular Clinical Trialist Meeting. It's my third time attending. It is a phenomenal meeting where all of the thought leaders in clinical trial development, 
like the biggest names that you could possibly imagine in cardiology. They're all there. They've invited different individual patient organizations to come and, and give perspective. And this would be my third time presenting at this. It was their 20th annual meeting. Rob Califf, the head of the FDA attends, and he's, he's there the whole time. Like he is invested. He is listening. He's at all the social gatherings. I had a nice little chat with him. This is the kind of access you get at this meeting. I met with other members of FDA. We're working on a meeting for next summer with them to really discuss HCM and clinical trials. Very productive meeting. Friday night, they have a keynote speaker. He was amazing. I'll talk about him a little bit more later. He wrote a book. He's a venture capitalist who is trying to get people to understand pharma's role in healthcare and really cool talk. He's going to be our new best friend. We're going to be doing some work with him and his organization coming up. So it was like super, super productive. His name is Peter Kolchinsky. He wrote the book, The Great American Drug Deal. He's going to help us put some information out that will help you all understand why the Inflation Reduction Act has some good parts to it, but there's also some problems and we need to fix those problems so that we maintain discovery and drug development. So it's this balancing act and it's a tricky line and I'm trying to navigate it as best we can to make sure that the patient's voice is front and center. So that was one of the conversations I had on Friday night. I got up and made a comment in front of like a thousand people, got applause, it was great. So great meeting. And then there was dinner. When you've had a heart transplant and you're immunocompromised, you are more susceptible to foodborne illnesses. So we don't typically eat from buffets. We don't typically eat salads and pre-plated meals because they're out too long and they can get bacteria on them. And our guts just cannot manage that bacteria level. And then there was this really great salad in front of me. It had these really great cherry tomatoes, like heirloom tomatoes, all different colors. It looks so good. And I love a good tomato. <laughs> and I just like, okay, I picked up my fork and I said, I hope I don't regret this. I stuck the fork in and the tomato was good, but the dressing was really good. And I just said, I just want one bite of the salad. So I took one bite of the lettuce. And then I decided that it probably is not a good idea. I should discontinue this. And I had a little bit of mashed potatoes and chicken for dinner after that and a little lemon tart and everything else was good. 24 hours later, like 11 o'clock Saturday night, I'm home and my stomach starts a grumbling. Uh -oh. And I was making hourly trips to the restroom. We'll just leave the rest for your imagination. Mm -hmm. TMI, TMI, TMI. But it got worse as the day went on and it got to a point where it was quite severe. I was very ill. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't want to go to the emergency room because the emergency room means they're going to put IVs in me. Mm -hmm. And I am an epically bad stick, epically. So um, I put it off, I put it off, I put it off. I called my transplant program, explained all the symptoms and the amount of blood. I'll just leave it there. Mm. And they said, get your ass to the emergency room. So I did. They very quickly cultured me and found me with an E. coli bacteria. Let the fun begin. I need <laughs> IV antibiotics. I need three days of IV antibiotics. I need painkillers. They come in and they're like, okay, we've got your painkillers. We are going to give you morphine. I'm like, whoa, I'm not morphine level. <laughs> I just wow. need a little, you know, Tegretol, like, like, like something like Percocet, like let's, let's start low and then go high. They give me some IV meds for pain and for nausea and we start everything. 
So I got my treat. I got my diagnosis. I got my treatment. I'm, I'm, I'm admitted. They try to start an IV. They try to take blood from me in the ER. They can't get blood from me in the ER. I had to give three sticks here. They tried one under here. Here, you got to see this lovely oh. bruise. Like, oh my gosh, right that spot. And then they tried up here with a ultrasound guided. And then they got that one in. This one on my hand failed in about two hours. So before I left the emergency room, I had two IVs and five, four sticks. They brought the ultrasound team in. They got the one in my upper like bicep. And then about nine, 10 hours later, that one failed. So then they brought in the IV team and they got a nice one here that didn't even bruise too much. Ultrasound guided, but that failed in 12 hours. There was no more access point. What's going what, What's going on with that? Why are some of us a harder stick? So some of us, I think, are just biologically a harder stick. You know, I think there is something about our HCM anatomy and our venous system that we're maybe not perfusing our, our arteries and our, our veins enough because we have limited blood flow. This is my hypothesis. This is not scientific. This is my hypothesis because my father was a bad stick. My niece, my daughter, me, we're all bad sticks. And I got a little weight on me. So weight doesn't make it any better. So you're, I got to try to lose some weight just so I can get a better stick. But then I started, you know, it's me. So I go down like the PubMed route and I start researching difficult sticks. But I found a meta-analysis on the problem of phlebotomy and difficult access. And it turns out that chemo patients, renal failure patients, IV drug users, and chronically ill people the chronically ill experience just vascular exhaustion, just don't have any more access points. Mm -hmm. You have just infiltrated all those veins. I've had endocarditis. I had IV therapy in 1990, but the antibiotics blew out all of my, my veins. And I, it's just been horrible ever since. I came up with an idea. And first of all, I'd love to hear from the audience. How many of you, the worst part of going to a hospital for a procedure is the IV. And past that, like you could do anything you want. Like I can have surgery. I could, I could have a therachotomy for Christ's sake. It's it's less painful than the stupid IV. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. No, I, well, I know you're not. I've had abdominal surgery. I've had a heart transplant. The worst part of everything is the IVs. No, Rodney, it's it, this has nothing to do with the nurse. And every phlebotomist or nurse that comes in says, but I haven't done it yet. This is not a you problem. This is a me problem. I don't have access. Even with the ultrasound, they're like, you don't have much to choose from. All of my veins are kind of crooked. I don't have that nice straight line where people can get in. I bend, I turn, I roll, I do all kinds of weird shit. And all the phlebotomists want to say is, no, I got you. And I'm like, no, you don't. So I found this meta-analysis. And it says that the average IV should take five minutes to start. From the time the phlebotomist enters the room till the time it's done, it should be no more than five minutes. And that that would be beautiful. And then they say a difficult stick is between five and 15 minutes. People, I am not exaggerating. I have witnesses. I am typically 45 minutes to an hour. So we have this problem. And then I realized that I'm not the only one with this problem because I know four members of my own, three members of my own family that have had a similar problem. I know people within the community that have had a similar problem and it's not the phlebotomist. And to be honest with you, the phlebotomist actually feel sorry for them. This is what happened this time. The one girl comes in to, to draw blood and she's got her little walkie talkie thing that they wear around their necks now. And her boss is saying, you need to go to, you know, floor four, room 20. They're waiting for you. She said, but I'm still here. 
And like three minutes later, the boss is like, you're, you know, floor four is still waiting for you. She's getting stressed. I'm getting stressed watching her get stressed, knowing that she's got my arm in her hand and she's about to stick a needle in me. And that I'm a difficult stick as is. She actually gave up this one oh, wow. and she brought in somebody else. And that other person came in and said, we're calling ultrasound. Ultrasound came in and did the IV and that one failed in like 12 hours. So I had no more access points unless they were going to do a midline, a pick line or a central line. I'm fine with that if we need to do it. But I was yeah. now in the hospital that day and, and we agreed that I could do an oral dose of antibiotics on top of the IV doses and I'd be fine. So where am I going with this? I'm going to work on a plan for myself that I'm going to put in my chart with my team with specific instructions that if I'm like outpatient, you need to send your best phlebotomist and IV guide or um, ultrasound guided IV just to set up the IV so we can minimize more damage to my vascular system. Yeah. If it looks like I'm going to need therapy for, you know, I'm going to be admitted and I'm going to need the IV for more than 40, 24 hours, then we're going to put a midline in. Even if it's for 24 or 48 hours, we need to preserve the rest of my access points. What is a mid midline? It's kind of, it's a, it's a smaller pick line. Okay. So it's like a pick line. So it's a step up from a regular IV. I've gone into surgery and they couldn't start it. And then they asked the anesthesiologist to start it. That was bad. That was bad. He got mad at me and he, why don't you have an IV? And I'm like, because I just decided not to. Like, right. <laughs> why are you making me feel more apprehensive and, and yeah. tense about this whole thing? So I have reached out to my friends at Morristown and I'm going to talk to my friends at NYU today. I want a pilot project through Epic that if you have been discussed and you already know that you're a difficult stick, that there is the difficult stick procedure put in your chart and that phlebotomy will operate under those instructions. It saves time. Everybody yeah. else is like five minutes for an IV. I'm sucking up an hour of a phlebotomist or a nurse's time. It's not good for workflow. Yeah. So I want to create a bigger solution. So this is my personal perspective and a new area to advocate on behalf of for patients. And I think it makes sense. When you're in there specifically, the IV is not just part of getting ready for something. The IV is why you're there to get the drugs administered. There's an emergent factor that plays in there as well. Exactly. There's not only just the emergent factor for the medical professionals to be able to provide you with the therapies that they need to, this could turn into a life sustaining right. issue. And if they're in there trying to start lines and it's just not going to happen, I mean, go into my neck if you have to. We know we can always do that, but that's kind of hardcore. And I'm already scarred up in my neck from over 20 biopsies. I know I kind of might look like I'm normal and I'm put together well, but uh, <laughs> the, the, this isn't quite working. So it would be ideal to have a note in your chart that says, just skip to B right? Mm -hmm. Or this is going to be an escalated procedure. It would, that would be nice. And then that saves you from having to explain it and you get right to the getting. As soon as I figure out how to do it and where it belongs and how it should be written up. And I talked to the phlebotomy teams, I will put the entire process online. I will share it with everybody and let's encourage everybody. We go through enough. The PTSD and trauma that I've been through just from getting IVs is ridiculous. Yeah. I have to give a sacrificial puncture because the phlebotomists come in and like Rodney said, and Rodney, I appreciate your comments. 
like you need a good nurse. Yeah, I, you, you start with a good nurse, but even then, I had one poor girl for 45 minutes trying to start an IV on me before my transplant. 45 minutes, she worked with like two veins trying to figure out which one and to get it to work. And there was heat and there was tourniquets and there were multiple tourniquets. And like at 45 minutes of time, we had a great conversation through that. But, <laughs> right. That's and all she you, was so you chill do. and I was being so chill, but I took an hour of labor of a nurse to start an IV. Yeah. I just feel bad about that part. You were on a thinner. They were mm -hmm. digging for a vein just Monday in my arm to just to take blood and they couldn't get one. Finally, they did. And then it just wanted to bleed when they stopped. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. I have always what I call the sacrificial puncture. So the one on my wrist here, which I showed you earlier, uh -huh. that was my sacrificial puncture from this event. Because when the nurse comes in in the ER and says, I say, I'm a hard stick. Let's have this conversation. And he's like, will you let me try? Yes, I'll let you try. But you better be damn sure you got something before you start poking. I have never had anybody poke my wrist in this spot before. It does not look like a fun spot for an IV. So he tries and he tries. And there's a lot of F words that fly while this is happening. I warn them in advance. It's not about you. This is just my comfort word. And there's going to be a lot of F words. <laughs> <laughs> I warn them. So there's F words flying. And... <laughs> He starts doing the wiggle thing. And I'm like, okay, as soon as you wiggle, you're done because that means you're not going to get it. I've been here before. You're yeah. done. Yeah. I said, and congratulations, you have now made the benchmark for the highest level of pain possible with a miss. It's not you. I know you're trying to do your job. I appreciate you, but it doesn't work. I think I have a pretty good sense of humor about the whole thing. You do. <laughs> I also have a lot of trauma related to these issues, if you can't figure that out. And it's unnecessary. I think we can come up with something better that works with the workflow better, that gives access, that makes patients safer, that makes staff happier. I think we can do better and I'm going to work on that. Did That's they get the medicine in your veins? They got the medicine in my veins and then they got it into my forearm because I infiltrated the IV on my arm on the last day of my hospitalization. Oh. And um, it took a couple of heating pads in a few days for that to reabsorb into my body. And then we just took oral antibiotics for the last dose. I am happy to report that I am feeling much better. Good. I was unaware that I had some underlying colitis that's mm. probably related to my transplant meds and a lot of the stomach issues that go with being a transplant patient. But here is the funny take home message from this. If I'm at a meeting with cardiovascular clinical trialists, and the head of the FDA is literally <laughs> one table away from me. And I even took a picture like of the back of his head, like, look, I'm that close to him. Yeah, yeah. I'll put it up online later if anybody wants to see. Like, I was literally one table away from Rob Caleb, Dr. Caleb. I got E. coli. I think I'm the only person that could have dinner with the FDA and get E. coli. And it was not fun. And it's, it's going to take a couple of weeks for my stomach to kind of resume normal functioning. And I am on a brat diet. So sourdough bread, tuna fish, peanut butter, bananas. These are my friends oh, wow. right now. And I'm just staying with my friends. I don't need to invite anybody else to the party. <laughs> I want to have good food at Christmas. So okay. did anybody else get sick? Do we know? I reported my E. coli to the, the organizers of the meeting, and then I'm like, I can't solve everybody's problems. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> so there's nothing I can do to help anybody right now. If you've got it, you've got it. If you don't, you don't. There is one other potential suspect, but this form of E. coli tends to come from lettuce specifically. So it's that one bite of lettuce, one bite, 
maybe two, um, at this event that was what caused it. But there was a water main shut down in my hotel and I was at the Grand Hyatt in Washington, D.C., about two blocks from the White House. They had the water go down, and when the water came back on, I let my water in the room run for about 10 minutes, but it was it was dirty. It was dirty water. So this type of E. coli shouldn't have been in water. It should be on lettuce, but I did brush my teeth the next morning after I'd let the water run, so there's the potential that it could have been in the water, but if it was in the water, I think a lot more people would have gotten sick. So if you're a transplant patient, remember to make sure all your meals are clean. <laughs> That's number one. Don't eat from buffets and don't eat salads out. Somebody else could have gotten the same kind of E. coli that I got and just had a little bit of stomach upset and it would have been fine. They didn't need to be hospitalized for it. But because I'm immunocompromised, that's why I did it. Plan your holidays well. Plan your rest. Plan your play. Please play. Please go out and have some fun. Please unwind a little bit. It's been a crazy year for so many people in so many ways. And I think like many people, as we come to the end of the year, that's the time we're like, what happened this year? For me, like in a couple of days is the anniversary of my mother's passing. My mother died on December 11th. So right coming into the holiday season in 2014. And then a couple of years before that, before my dad died, that's when his kidneys failed and we convinced him to do dialysis for a period of time. So there are some triggering issues coming into the holidays related to my parents and loss. And it took a long time for us to find some happiness in the holidays again, because it kind of weighed heavy on us. But I think, you know, you only get so many Christmases, you do. so you many Hanukkahs and so many New Year's. and The anniversary of my mom's death, December 8th. Oh. And so this is number three. And I won't say that it's gotten easier, but I've learned to do exactly what you're saying is you still have to live your life and it's okay to be sad but then i've tried to find ways to honor them on the day or at christmas like we do a reading from the bible that my mom used to make us do make us do listen to me when we were little we couldn't open any presents until she read the chapter of luke in the bible that talks about the birth of christ so we've tried to make that a tradition now of when we were little kids we just wanted to open presents but now it's a meaningful thing that we stop down to do to honor her so i found that's kind of therapeutic um but but it's a super triggery time of year prickly time of year for me so what we've done in our family is my mother was the dessert maker she would make caramel pudding so we're norwegian so caramel pudding is what everybody else calls flan, but we call okay. it caramel pudding. I have no idea why. So Lynn makes the caramel pudding. Stacy makes what's called kromkaga, which is a Norwegian Christmas cookie that's kind of rolled. There's an Italian version as well, but the Norwegian one has cardamom in it. Hmm. And that's what makes it special. So Stacy makes that. And then there's the rice pudding. Frankly, my least favorite of all of the holiday desserts, but I took rice pudding because those were the three desserts that my mother made. And now we each make one of them and that keeps mom in the holidays. Traditions. Traditions are important. And I think we find out how important as we age, right? Mm -hmm. By the way, we found a vodka based pie crust that we've now rolled into the fold of holiday specials. So it actually is really good. I'll share the recipe with you. Okay. And then we'll have to put that in a newsletter. So everybody (laughs) you can get get your alcohol in your pie, people. (laughs) Right. I'm sure that the alcohol all kind of goes away. It's a twofer. That's really cool. So, you know, I'm sure you all have your holiday traditions, whether it be how you're making your latkes. I mean, I 
I, I have to forego latkes this Hanukkah season because I cannot eat anything fried. Um, so eat your latkes for me, people. I love my latkes with, I'm an applesauce person. Oh. I like latkes with applesauce, but not this year. I'll just have the applesauce. We have these holiday traditions and we also have the ability to get really stressed out. So we overindulge with food and alcohol, which isn't easy on our hearts, but our hearts have pissed us off all year. So we want to just relax from it and get a vacation from it, but we can't. So remember, if you're going to indulge this holiday season to make sure that you're staying very well hydrated in advance and that not only are you staying hydrated, but if you're going to have a drink, have a glass of water, have your drink, have a glass of water, have a drink so that you make sure that you're keeping your volume up. Try not to overeat. Think about what you're eating. Make, make your choices in advance because it's hard on your heart to have a full stomach. And that means, you know, you might have to say no to things that you like or just moderation. Have a taste of everything. If you really like something, ask to take it home with you so you can have it later as well. You know, pack it up safely. Keep it temperature controlled. Be smart about it and have some fun. Some memories. Why else are we here? It's a good time to stop back and look. You've had... I've seen your schedule this year and you've, I don't know, you've tr probably traveled more than you have in your life, but uh, you know, we look back all the way to January and it's the end of the year. We were so busy living it that we really didn't take inventory of all of these things that we did. So it's a good time too to just look back and see what you've been through and make note of your actual accomplishments. Yes. I, I have had accomplishments this year, yep. but I, would not have been able to have those accomplishments if we didn't have a phenomenal team behind us. And that team is staff, contractors, volunteers, board, like everybody who has come to the table has really stepped up. And next year, we're going to be adding two new board members and one will be sunsetting. So my profound thanks to Richard Mila for his service on our board for over a decade. Richard oh. is now 80 years old and he is going to um, go into an emeritus status with the board, which opened up a position and that we had two candidates for, and we have two powerhouse individuals joining our board. You'll hear more about them coming up soon. I'm very excited about their participation and the skill sets that they bring. We're also building some new communication tools. So we have so many like truly amazing individuals who happen to have HCM and amazing yeah. resumes. And they have knowledge in healthcare and aspects of, of the law and regulatory processes that are going to be really helpful to us going forward. So I'm building an advisory circle, like so that I will have the board and then I have this other group of people that are just like this mind trust of amazing access to knowledge and they want to help the cause. So we're going to be building that out. There'll be openings on committees coming into 2024. So we'll be doing some recruiting in the first quarter for bringing some people onto the health equity committee. I think patient education, I don't know if they have any openings this time, the legislative committee. We're going to be opening up for more ambassadors. So all of those people together are why I'm so busy right now and why it's been a little bit crazy. January, we started off with a man called Otto mm -hmm. and Tom Hanks had HCM. What the oh, hell? No. Right. Like, where did that come from? Like, nobody consulted me ahead of time. I wish they had. <laughs> um, so everybody was like, wow, Tom Hanks has HCM. I'm like, son of a bitch. Here we go. 
And then we had a really successful HCM Awareness Day in February. And that led us to the ACC conference. And that then led me to, in May, I went to the World Heart Federation meeting in Geneva, Switzerland. And I'm gonna be doing a lot more work with WA World Heart Federation and the World Health Organization. So there's just been so much stuff coming up there and our voice is getting elevated and the patient organizations around the world are getting more congealed and we know what everybody's doing so that we can lean on each other for their strengths and we can help them succeed and they're helping us succeed. So we're making all these connections worldwide. We've extended our HCM international program. By the end of the first quarter, we'll have memorandums of understanding with 11 different organizations worldwide. Michelle is doing some amazing work with our international efforts. So yay for that. Then we get into the summer and we're trying to plot and plan for the fall because there's so much going on. Meanwhile, every day, every week, every month, we're doing our intakes, our navigations, our discussion groups, our big hearted warrior tour, our podcasting, as all of this other stuff is going on. We get into the end of the summer. We went to the ESC conference and we're working on our international connections again. We had a great meeting with the Viz AI folks and we're gonna be looking at working with them more closely to develop artificial intelligence reads and, and AI use for screening people for HCM and their EKGs. So there's like a great pathway there. We organized a clinical trial endpoints meeting for October. Oh, I forgot, I went to Italy with the Global Heart Hub folks and we've got some more international energy there going and we've got some great partners we're gonna do some amazing work with. We had our clinical trial endpoints meeting and we brought the top people, they were the same people that were at CVCT. How do we do better to be get better endpoints for our trials? And that sounds a lot very wordy and I want patients to understand what this means. If any of you have called the HCMA this year, and you're one of them, Joey, Yep. we um, started asking questions differently in January of 2023. So some of you may have heard of New York Heart Association class. And this is a way your doctor kind of marks you as how symptomatic are you? How much disease burden do you have? So if you're New York Heart Association class one, you have no limitations, you can do everything you want, your heart is not holding you back in any way, shape or form. And very few people with HCM are consistently in that class. Some people may be episodic and they're fine most of the time, but other days maybe they can't walk up a flight of stairs or do an incline, or maybe they feel their heart racing and maybe they have to not walk as fast as their friends. That would be like New York Heart Association class two. New York Heart Association class three, maybe you have to sit down sometimes when you're walking and maybe you can't do things like you used to. If you're going shopping, maybe you need to sit for 10 minutes after you've been shopping for half an hour. If you go for a walk, maybe you have to find a bench for a while. And if you're New York Heart four, you're pretty much homebound. So if you take all of those considerations and you look at what a doctor labels you, they do things like mm, they're one, two, mm, they're two, three, they're three, four, and the doctor assesses based on what you tell them. And you and I both know that we're fine. Right. We're fine. It's, it's our reality. It, it, it's, you know, we're doing okay. Mm -hmm. So how we communicate, how we're feeling to our doctors, lets them put the New York Heart Association class on board. And sometimes it's not correct. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't stay in one class. We bounce. So as of January of 23, we started asking all of you who called in, on a good day, what is your New York Heart Association class? 
on an average day and on a bad day. And what we found was pretty remarkable. Only 22% of you are consistently in one class. But if then we take a look at those people, even if you're New York Heart Association class three and you know that's what you can predict and that's where you are, psychologically you're doing better because you know what to expect every day. If you're always a class two, you're doing okay. If you're always a class one, we're really jealous of you and we're all trying to be you. <laughs> and we're happy for you. We don't want you to be symptomatic. We're happy that you're ones, but you're truly ones because you're reporting that like, I don't have limitations. So when we look at it that way, 88% of people bounce. Wow. And they can bounce from a one to a four. There was like nine people out of 300 that bounced from, I'm fine some days and I'm in the bed the next. And we don't understand the why of that. Why is this important? When applications for a drug label go to the FDA, they have to show that they've improved your life in some way. And one of the markers that they used was New York Heart Association class. So if you improve by one class, yay, you win. But if you decreased, then the drug might lose. But what if you happen to go to the doctor on a bad day and they record that bad day, but maybe on the drug, you used to have 40% bad days and now you only have 10% bad days. How do you measure that? That's yeah. success. There's still bounceability, I'll call it, but it, it's better, but there's no way to measure that better. I'm hoping that the payer community is listening to this part and maybe we can edit this piece in a little bit more, uh, Joey, for later use. But what's happening is if the label is based on an improvement of New York Heart Association class by one class, some payers are like, mm, that's not enough. That's an awful expensive drug for a little improvement of one class. But the drugs do, the, the myosin inhibitors do way more than improve by one class. They are improving quality of life for at least a third, if not two thirds of patients who are taking them in remarkable ways. And we want that documented properly so that when it gets to the payers, they understand yeah. the value. And we need them to see the value of these therapies. So we, as the HCMA, feel that this is our place to talk about patient reported outcomes. We are the patient organization. So I'm very happy to say we've had now three meetings with the FDA where they've come to the table and said, we want to hear, we want to help. We're going to be working with a group of other organizations who have an interest in HCM research to meet with the FDA next summer. And we may be asking for some patients to come join us for this meeting, either virtually or in person. So stay tuned for how that's going to work. I don't have the details yet, but we want to make sure that we're creating better outcome measures for trials so that not only can we get to a label, meaning it can be prescribed to people, but the payers will understand its value and want to help us with supporting and, and paying for these therapies and not excluding them from formulary and those types of things. But to get to that payment piece, you got to start at the trial creation piece. We've been working on that and we did that meeting in October and then I had a secondary meeting in November and then the third meeting was in December. So three months in a row, three meetings with the FDA. We are on the hot track to get this done for next summer and maybe even create a three to five year roadmap 
to answer more questions as we go. If you told me five years ago that we would be engaged in conversations with the FDA at this level, I would have said, oh, I wish. We, we, we see each other on the computer all the time, but when we were all there together, it was amazing how deep the bench has gotten and just how big the network has grown. It's impressive. I'm impressed, but I, I, I'm my worst critic. I'm like, oh, it's better. <laughs> it can be faster. It could be more organized. We could do this. We could do that. And I always am looking for how to make it a little bit better and open up more access to, to resources for patients. You know, the Lori Fund this year had a great year. Good. We were able to, as of October, we had given out over $5,000 in uh, travel vouchers. And I know there's been a couple more in the past couple of weeks. So we're probably going to be $7,000 in travel vouchers given this year, which means I don't know the number of families because they don't all go to 600. So I know there's been at least 20 families that we've helped get to care. We're really starting to amp up our relationship with Angel Flight. If you are in you know, the United States and you need travel to get to a center, we can provide you with a private plane. Private jet. How do you get that? Yeah. That is super cool. It I is mean, super cool. You know, and they volunteer. Some of the volunteers are part of that and use their own planes. It really is a testament to what we're doing here, that they're on board. But it also the other part that I see that is reassuring is the people who are willing to invest in what we're doing and the people that want to sponsor what we're doing to help us get there, that's growing. That is growing. It's amazing. So that that brought us to October. When I came back from Italy in the beginning of October, I went immediately to Cleveland to the HSFA conference and Elena and Stacy and Ross and I were there. We had a very interesting hotel. We, we do Airbnb so we can get like one unit. That was the strangest Airbnb ever. If anybody <laughs> needs a, a large Airbnb in Cleveland, we could get you some interesting information on a really cool place. We did that. And then I went off to Michigan and I went to the state house and I literally brought Victoria's heart, who lives in Gross Point, Michigan, to the state house of her state wow. and said, this is what HCM is. And this is a Michigan heart. Help me help others. That was pretty cool. So we'll have a bill number hopefully in January out of Michigan for the Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act. And we are really kicking up our efforts with the legislative initiative. Our report card should be done very soon and we'll make that public so you can look and see how your state is doing and what you can do to engage your own state. So we're working on that and we're working on planning our HCM Awareness Day initiatives in DC. They're not gonna be able to be on HCM Awareness Day proper going to have to be on the 15th. I think we're going to do it because ha house goes out of session. So they go away for president's weekend and then they're gone for two weeks. We can't use our actual day. So we'll be doing webinars that day and we're going to do some online activity that day. But on the actual Hill day, we're going to be looking for people to come in with us and make some comments. And so if you're in the DC area or can travel in for February, get in touch with us. We, we'd love to have as many people on board as possible. So we're planning that for next year. And then I went to Brazil. You did, that was a big one. HCMA received an award from a wonderful partner organization called Lado e Lado, which in Portuguese is side by side. And it's a wonderful patient organization. And we are looking to do some great work with the people of Brazil. I actually went to parliament and I mailed a postcard to the office and to my home from Parliament, and it arrived. Oh, I thought it was on my desk. It arrived here this week. Oh. <laughs> it takes a little while to get the mail. <laughs> 
We met with members of parliament because Brit the, the Brazilian government uh, in 1988 wrote into their constitution that every person has a right to health care. No. And they created a program called SUS, which is kind of like their Medicare, but it's open to all. So everybody has free access to health care. The quality of that health care varies greatly by where you are in the in the country. And you can get private insurance as well. But what they've done is they revamped their cancer care program and they're building up a more modern health system for cancer. And now they want to do that in cardiovascular. And a member of the Brazilian government asked me and the HCMA, hey, can you help us figure out what we're missing? I'm like, uh, yeah, I can do that for the 202 million people of Brazil. So we're going to be weighing in on that in the coming year, which is really exciting and will give us, you know, a different vantage point to see, you know, what we can do in different countries to help patients access care, help make sure that the education is there and that nobody is denied access to high quality health care for their hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, regardless of where they live. If they live in Sao Paulo, the Brasilia or the Amazon, we need to find ways for everybody to get access to care. So using we're international now. We are very international. We're international now, people. We have some very <laughs> cool international friends. And so we left there and I came home and I went to the American Heart Association conference. A lot of cool stuff was happening there. Again, we met up with our friends from Viz AI and we held a little cocktail party. And it was just kind of an open discussion of, okay, thought leaders in HCM and artificial intelligence, where are we going and how do we safeguard our community from, you know, bad data? And how are we going to build trust with this new form of information and information evaluation? And so we're, we're helping to create a smoother pathway to a diagnostic opportunity for many. So that was uh, like a couple of weeks ago. And we came back from AHA. Oh, then I went to CVCT and uh, almost died. So yeah. Get some time off to enjoy before the end of the year. <laughs> so the HCMA will be closed between Christmas and New Year's except for essential functions. Perfect. So the entire team will get some time off to recharge, spend with their families and really take a moment, I hope, to reflect on the amazing year we had in the past and where we're going in the future. We're hiring right now. I'm bringing in one new full-time staff member, and we are also working with a newly retired nurse practitioner who is going to hopefully come on board for a, a contract gig one day a week. She'll be nice. working with us doing navigation calls. Nice. So that'll get me off the phone a little bit more. So not everybody's going to do a nav call with Lisa, but you're going to get a nurse practitioner retired. And that's going to help with the clinical to break down the pieces like I do with you during that nav call. Linda will be stepping in, providing more general patient advocacy, navigation, insurance problems, 504 plans, getting, you know, patient assistance programs working, helping you find mental health resources, hooking you up with discussion groups. So I'm splitting the job into three sections, the clinical, the general advocacy, and then I am not giving up meeting each and every one of you because I really feel that that keeps us a bit special yeah. and you will have direct feedback to me on how the process is working, what's working, what's not, but our calls will go down to more of a five, 10 minute call than a 45 minute call, because you'll get the rest of the information from the rest of this wonderfully skilled staff. We're doing some clinical trial recruitment this year. 
If you have non-obstructed HCM and you are interested in a clinical trial, call the office. We can hook you up with multiple different trials that are recruiting right now. For those of you who participated in the Embryo trial, the readout, the initial readout was positive. So there Good. was potentially a phase three trial coming up. If you have a myosin binding protein C mutation, Tenaya Therapeutics has the gene therapy trial that's going on. And we're really excited about that, that we are helping connect patients to trials and trials to patients. Anything hot for us obstructed folks? Well, you're previously obstructed. Once you no longer have active obstruction, you should be looking at the non-obstructed trials. So you have to wait for six months after you've had septal reduction therapy. Wow. And you are now a non-obstructed individual and you are open to the non-obstructed trial. So you have to wait for six months. Okay. So you can wow. enter a trial for a myosin inhibitor post myectomy. That's news. That's breaking news for me. Yeah, some people don't quite get that one. And uh -uh. And one other like education piece that I want to put out there, and we've talked about this multiple times, and it came up again this week on the Facebook page. If you have genetic testing and it does not find a genetic marker, that does not mean you don't have HCM or you don't have a genetic form of HCM. Only 40% of those with HCM have a known mutation. Even a member of our own staff who was genetic testing years ago, and they said, we can't find anything, they redid the genetics this year and found a, new, a mutation in myosin heavy chain. So you have to kind of go back every few years and the tests get better and we learn more. And there's probably two or three genes that we haven't figured out yet or a combination of genes that happen, which is called the polygenetic score that may be leading to your HCM. So just because you have a no mutation found or a negative genetic test, does not mean you don't have genetic HCM. We're not smart enough yet to find all of the gene mutations. It's really important that you continue to get your family clinically screened for HCM through an echo EKG and checkup with a cardiologist. That one keeps floating up and I'm gonna work on a whiteboard education piece about that, that we can just dump on everybody. Like, here's how you understand it. Variance of uncertain significance, the significance becomes clear, whether it's benign or pathogenic. You can't get too complacent with HCM. Things are moving really fast right yes. now. And we are trying our very, very best to keep the information that you need to know succinct, available. And when you have questions, you just call the office and the amazing team here will help you out. Plus our website has so much information on it as well. When I found HCMA, it really did change my life because I went from being surrounded by people that mostly had never heard of it, right? And I'm talking about medical team on down to a group of people that have been living it. And um, it's hard to put into words how that changes when you find this group of people that you don't have to get up to speed and then they're the ones educating you. It's kind of a, it's a cool thing. So some people say like, why should I call the office? Like, why, why should I call in? And we have an intake process. We have a navigation process. And sometimes it just, am I doing the right things and checking and confirming other times is I think I'm lost or did I do the right thing? Or does my doctor really seem to get this or not? This week we had a call from a woman who was highly symptomatic, was being kind of gaslit by her local doctor, like not even sure if she had HCM, but her GP was sure she did. And I was pretty sure she did. And there was some exacerbating circumstances. She had COVID and developed myocarditis on top of HCM. So there was some arrhythmias after that, but she was not in great shape. 
her reports were concerning. She had an appointment at the end of the month. And I said, honey, this isn't something to wait for the end of the month for. She's like, but I can't get in. And there are times when we at the HCMA can call the Center of Excellence because we are partners and say, we're concerned. Right. Is there anything you can do to get this person in faster? So the call was on Wednesday. I was literally out of the hospital for three hours <laughs> and I'm on the phone with her. And I said, this doesn't sit well. Would you be open to a sooner appointment if I can get you one? There were some logistical problems with a child in college and coming back and forth and whatever. I'm like, we could do this before your kid's gonna come home. We can do this like soon. So I called one of our great partners and I said, here's her information, I'm worried. And he looked at it and said, me too. And she was seen yesterday. Oh, good. Five hours away from home. And she qualifies for Lori funds. So she's going to be getting Lori funds to, to subsidize what she has as her, out of her out-of-pocket expenses. We got her managed. And it was important that she get there. Life-changing for her. The device choice that they made at home was not necessarily there. The medication, not necessarily there. The treatment pathway, not necessarily there. And in 72 hours, we've got it all cleaned up. It's amazing. That make me feel good about my day. We're going to leave off with a mom message. Okay. So today I put on these black pearl earrings because they were my mom's because mm. I wanted mom with me today. The poster that you have in this room and in your previous room has the date of August 19th, which is my parents' anniversary. And I want to acknowledge your mom today. Thank you, Lisa. And thank her because she did a really good job raising a great guy. Don't make me cry. <laughs> uh, I got my candle on back there for mom. I hadn't lit it until today and I lit it just in time for the podcast today. But yeah, three years. It's a different world without mom, isn't it? It is. Nothing's ever quite the same, but... We go on. We go on and we're us because they were them. Yep. Good, bad, and indifferent. Yeah. And to all the moms out there, I hope you have a great holiday season. And I hope you make a lot of wonderful memories. And we'll talk to you again on the next Tales from the Heart. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Joey. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Yes. Whatever your... However you celebrate. Are, be focused and centered. And may the energy of the universe be positive for you.